This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning amidst a very busy sports day coming up between football and baseball going on in the playoffs. Um, I was at the UConn sideline last night uh, in their game against Memphis. And, uh, you know, just a a great group of of folks, great, great team that really is kind of gelling together. It's one of those growing years. Uh, But it's always great to get out and see the crowd uh, supporting the home team and the University of Connecticut. But today we're going to be chatting with, this is a different topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about hearing loss. And the reason we got on this topic was a frequent listener of the show I met, um, I asked, as I asked many people, what would you like to hear about? And she said, I'd like to hear something about hearing loss. So with that, uh, our guest in the studio today is going to be Dr. Ben Witcherly. Dr. Witcherly is a specialist in otorhinolaryngology, ENT, uh, and otology, but he has a very special interest in hearing loss in particular and a new procedure uh, that may help many people. So I'm going to give you the phone numbers throughout the show, but I'm going to give them to you now, 860-522-9842. And 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. If you don't want to come on the program, you can email me live on the show at info at alessimd.com and we'll answer your we'll answer any questions you have. This day in medicine, October 7th, 1939, was the day Dr. Harvey Cushing died. Dr. Harvey Cushing was really the father of American neurosurgery and certainly neuroendocrinology. Uh, Dr. Cushing in neuroendocrinology really worked on the areas of the brain that control the endocrine system. And when we think of that, we think of the pituitary gland, what's also known as the master gland. And the job of the pituitary gland is to signal other glands to produce hormones. So it works with the thyroid, the adrenal gland, the ovaries, the testes. And it is such a small gland. It is just the size of a pea. So again, we remember uh, Dr. Harvey Cushing, who died this day on 1939. Many people have been hearing about um, the young girl who was hit in the face with a baseball at Yankee Stadium. And that that occurred back on September 21st. Uh, She suffered many facial fractures. I'm certain she's going to have to have more surgery But the debate has come up about netting going down the baselines. I don't think there should be a debate here. Uh, That ball is coming off a bat very quickly. And here's a piece of information, a little bit of so-called, no pun intended, inside baseball. 
whenever I've met professional players, okay, baseball players, when their families come to the stadium, they always, always, always insist that their seats are behind the netting. Very interesting. So there's something they know that probably the rest of us don't know. And it's become evident to us that you need to have netting beyond the dugout. Now, people have debated this. These are expensive seats. And they, get this, they diminish from the fan experience. Okay. Safety comes first, folks. And I don't sit anywhere but behind the netting when I'm at any baseball game. And I can tell you, it does not diminish any part of my experience in terms of seeing the ball, seeing the game. It is not an obstruction from that standpoint. And uh, the safety is crucial. So uh, the Yankees have committed to changing it and extending the netting beyond the dugouts next year. And I don't think that's going to make a difference in the people who are paying uh, 300 bucks a seat there as to whether or not they're going to go to a game. And they'll find out it's it's just as enjoyable. Some controversies in health going on. There's a mom in in Michigan who refused a court order to vaccinate her nine-year-old son. I, I thought we'd put this thing to rest, but it just keeps coming up. Here's a woman. We put her on the press. She's decided not to vaccinate her son. She and her husband, she said, were on the same page. They were divorced. He feels that the child should be vaccinated. And basically, I guess the rule in Michigan is if you're not going to do it, both parents have to agree. They say it's because of religious belief. But there is no organized religion that is against vaccination. I don't care what it is. Islam, Judaism, Christianity. No one says, don't. we, we always hear about um, you know, Christian scientists uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses not getting a transfusion, they still believe in vaccinating their children. So let's get really straight here. And the point is that this is wrong. We need to protect our children and protect the rest of the population. Uh, there are three states, California, Mississippi, and uh, West Virginia, that don't allow non-medical exemptions. Now, in Connecticut, we do have some limited exemptions, but I'm proud to say that the state of Connecticut is among the highest in having children get their vaccinations. Um, And it's very rare that it is not for other than medical reasons. So this is absolutely crucial. And uh, it's just something that's gotten carried away with a bunch of misinformation from a Dr. Andrew Wakefield in England who has since lost his license and has been discredited by every medical association. Candida auris. This is a yeast that's going around in hospitals. It's multi-drug resistant. And we hear more and more about these drug-resistant infections. This is the latest one. Um, it, it's been known around the world, but we've just seen it in the United States since 2016. And because it has such a a high amount of drug resistance. Uh, We're seeing it in hospitalized patients, and it has resulted in deaths. This is, again, those things that result from increased travel, and they get introduced in our population here in the United States. 
The last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about was an article, actually the computer guys, uh, the tab computer guys gave me, about something called the PHQ-9 questionnaire. This is a questionnaire to evaluate someone for depression. So it's usually filled out in a doctor's office, and the doctor then reviews that with someone. Uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness has endorsed the fact that they're putting the PHQ on Google so that people can fill this out and really determine if they have clinical depression. So it's pretty interesting from that standpoint. I didn't realize really one in five Americans suffer an episode of clinical depression in their lifetime, but only half of these people actually seek help. So I am all in favor of reaching out from the medical community to people and having them work towards a problem. Here's the issue. Privacy. I mean, are you really going to fill out a mental health questionnaire online? Uh, because we know all about Internet security now, and there is none. So I think we have to overcome that to some degree before I would recommend filling something out like that. Looking at it and not filling it out online and just looking at the questions and maybe doing a self-assessment would be the best way to approach that problem and using the Internet from that standpoint. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest here in the studio, Dr. Ben Witcherly, and we're going to be talking about hearing loss. Again, the phone number is 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today my guest here in the studio is Dr. Ben Witcherly. Dr. Witcherly is a specialist in otorhinolaryngology, ENT, and he also did a fellowship in neurotology. He is at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center where he practices with the Pro Health Physicians Group. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, being an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Okay. Um, you know, medical school, what what type of training have you had? Well, uh, after medical school, it's five years of residency training. Uh, it's a surgical subspecialty, so it's a little, little bit longer in terms of duration. So five years, a year of internship where you spend time in general surgery and other specialties, and then four years where you really focus on your nose and throat surgery and problems. And uh, during that time, I... Uh, took a liking to the ear surgeries. You sit during ear surgery, you're under a microscope with tiny instruments in small places, and so I took a liking to that. So that is what generated my interest in otology and neurotology. So after residency, I spent a year with a group of ear surgeons in Florida and focused my practice afterwards in ear problems. So you've traveled a fair bit. I mean, uh, we talked before. You're from Boise, Idaho, went yeah. to school at Tulane, so you spent time in Louisiana, and then up to Georgetown, then down to Florida. Right. And now Connecticut. Now Connecticut, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to see the United States a little bit, and it's worked out pretty well. All right. Well, we hope to keep you here. So let's talk a little bit about the ear itself and the structure and what we're talking about when you say the ear. In other words, the 
what makes it all up? What are the things our listeners need to know about the anatomy of the year? Okay, great question. So there, you can divide it into three parts. So the external ear includes the oracle, which is you know the cup-shaped cartilage structure on the side of the head that funnels sound to the ear canal. So the oracle to the ear canal to the eardrum, that's all the external ear. So the external ear has its own set of, of problems and functions. Once you go underneath the eardrum, you're in the middle ear, and that's a space that is ideally air-filled, a very small air-filled space that has a tube that connects the middle ear to the back of the nose, and the tube is about three centimeters, not very long, but has a very important function. That's the eustachian tube. And uh, also in the middle ear are three little tiny ossicles or bones that bridge the eardrum to the inner ear. So that's essentially the middle ear space. Then the inner ear has a hearing organ and a balance organ, and they're very delicate, but they're encased in very thick, dense bone. And then from that, um, there are nerves that connect the balance organ and the hearing organ to the brain. So when we talk about hearing loss, where are we focusing our attention in someone? Is it more on the middle ear? Most hearing losses are a loss of function of the inner ear. Okay. So the, the sensory organ, it's a sensory loss, which currently is irreversible. And so an inner ear hearing loss needs uh you know, a hearing aid essentially is is the standard treatment for to amplify or improve a hearing loss. But in the middle ear, there are treatable causes of hearing loss. As we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, personally, my mother had a stapedectomy where they replaced the stapes bone in the middle ear and it restored her hearing in, in 1960. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that surgery and those types of surgeries are much more common now. They are. Um when that surgery was developed, the stapes surgery, which is to fix us a little ossicle that's stuck uh, and essentially replace it with a prosthetic, a tiny prosthetic. So initially when the surgery came out, prior to, say, the 1960s, the, the teaching was do not touch that bone. Leave it alone. You're going to cause more harm than good. And so when this surgery was developed, there were thousands of patients lining up for the surgery. So there was this... You know, there were surgeons that did 10 surgeries a day really? on the middle ear. Yeah, but that backlog, you know, over 10 years, uh, 15, 20 years, quickly uh, got um, kind of eaten up. And now it's it's fairly common, um, but it's not it's not as uh, prolifer- proliferative as it was before. Um, so it's something that I see on a weekly basis, typically, a patient that has uh, that might need a stapes surgery. Or the other option for them would be a hearing aid as well. But it's fairly common, but but it, uh, times have changed a little bit. And the surgical techniques are fairly similar, but um, slightly different and improved over time as we've learned how to kind of perfect the technique. Uh, you brought up the subject of hearing loss in general. And why are we see- are we recognizing more hearing loss now uh, or is it less? I mean, we see more and more people wearing hearing aids. Yeah. Uh, even younger people. Uh, are, are we seeing more hearing loss? Are we damaging our ears more or less? I think that's a 
question we don't know the answer to. Um, possibly, it's definitely possible that we're ha- we're experiencing more hearing loss than we have before. We're experiencing it in a slightly different way. You know, even 30 years ago, there was a lot less awareness of uh, harmful sound or noise volume at work, and so there weren't programs and mandated ear protection at work, which that's changed dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. So you used to see a lot of hearing loss, or you still see it in older patients that have had a lot of noise exposure. Um, we still see that from patient, or you know, patients that serve in the military, of course. Um, but now what we see more of is a recreational noise-induced hearing loss, so loud music, concerts, personal listening devices, things like that. So there is this possibility that we'll see a boom in hearing loss as the younger generation ages. Uh, so are these earbuds everybody's walking around with not safe to use? Uh, are there safer ones than others, or is it all proportionate on what the volume is? It's all proportionate on the volume. So I think there are safer ones in terms of um, if if you're trying if you keep the volume usually less than 60, 50 percent of the of the capacity or the possible volume, you're generally in a safe level. So there are two elements to staying in a safe situation for for loud noise. One is the volume, and two is duration. So the louder it is, the shorter the duration where you're safe. Um, so with with I think with if you're wearing headphones, the better the headphones fit, and the less you have to turn the volume up to try to overpower the external environment. Usually, the safer the volume is. So, in in one sense, noise cancellation headphones that cancel out the competing noise around you usually listen at a lower volume because you're not trying to turn it up and kind of overpower the sound that you don't want to hear externally. So those could. Could be of a benefit if it someone's be. used to using headphones. If you're using them properly, they're they're they could be. Yep. How about in children? Uh, are children's ears more susceptible to damage to loud noises? Um, no, they're not necessarily more I see susceptible. Bi- now I see children. In other words, if they're in a loud environment, parents put headphones on them, or um, uh, if you're at a fireworks display, they're they're. Very cautious with young children. So I was wondering if they are more susceptible to injury. No, they're not more susceptible, but I think that's a, um, a result of just increased awareness of the of the dangers of loud noises and how it can affect your hearing loss. I think the biggest factor in susceptibility to loud noise um, is not just the noise itself, but also your genetics. So we don't understand totally. We're learning more and more about the genetics of hearing loss, but... If you look at 100 patients that work in a loud noise environment for 30 years and they didn't wear ear protection most of that time, you'll see a, very, a, a great variability in how much hearing loss those patients have. And so some people are more res- resistant to no- loud noise exposure than others in terms of their hearing loss. So we don't understand why that is, but we know that that exists. So we're not gonna, you're not going to know how susceptible you are to loud noise, so you're taking a chance. Right. So, absolutely, very interesting, yeah. uh, especially on the whole individuality of patients. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Ben Witcherly. Phone numbers here: eight six zero five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. 
In our next segment, we're going to talk about a new procedure uh, that may help people with the hearing that Dr. Witcherly is performing at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. We're also going to be talking about hearing aids. Have they become better? What's the newest in those things? And in general, talking about hearing loss and as always taking your questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. That is the sound of the Bee Gees and Saturday Night Fever. And they will be, not the Bee Gees, uh, but there is a disco presentation at the Mohegan Sun. And that's going to be tomorrow, October 8th. Uh, the Saturday Night Fever Disco presentation in the arena at the Mohegan Sun, where you can see some great acts and really enjoy good meals and have a, a great night out. We're back here with uh, Dr. Ben Witcherly, and we're talking about hearing loss. And uh, there are so many factors in hearing loss. Uh, we talked a little bit about tinnitus and hearing loss, but you know, one of the things that bothers people a lot is when you're in an airplane, when you get to high altitudes, heck, when you're driving your car and going up a hill or through a mountainous area, you feel your ears pop and changes in your ears. And when those changes don't go away, it becomes very disconcerting. Can we talk a little bit about that, Ben, uh, in terms of uh, some of the function, what's going on at that point in time? Sure. So the eustachian tube uh, connects the middle ear down into the back of the nose. So it's kind of an important junction between the nose and the sinuses draining into the throat and things from the throat or stomach or even acid uh, from the stomach refluxing up and can affect the, the eustachian tube. So what the eustachian tube does uh, is at rest, it stays closed and it needs to stay closed to protect the ear from anything that could reflux up from the nose or throat up into the middle ear, and also to serve as a barrier for breathing and sound. If your eustachian tube isn't closed at rest, you'll hear yourself breathing loudly in your ears or you'll hear your own voice echoing in your ears. It can be very annoying for patients. So normal eustachian tube is closed. I have to say, I've never thought of that, but yeah. it absolutely is true. Physiologically, that's what would happen. Yes. Wow. So then when you swallow or yawn, the eustachian tube needs to open. Very briefly. It's it's less than a second. It will just dilate open and close immediately. But the but any fluid that's accumulated in the middle ear is able to escape down the eustachian tube and drain the middle ear and keep that space free of fluid. But what it does um, all the time is equalize the air pressure. So there's a certain pressure in the middle ear space that needs to be in a certain range for the eardrum to vibrate normally. And so if you're not constantly replenishing the air behind the eardrum, you know, the body will create a vacuum. It will absorb the oxygen out of that space into the bloodstream and create a vacuum, and the eardrum will get pulled in. And your, your hearing will get a little muffled, and it's uncomfortable. And people will try to instinctively open their jaw or yawn or swallow or pop their ear by holding their nose and pushing to try to open that eustachian tube to equalize the pressure. And so that, that needs to happen when you drive over a hill, even a fairly small hill, the atmospheric pressure changes enough, you'll feel it in your ear. So the eustachian tube needs to dilate open to equalize that pressure or it's, it's uncomfortable. So what happens <clears throat> if the eustachian tube doesn't open? Uh, you'll, you'll pull the eardrum in and you'll feel kind of a feeling of fullness and muffled hearing. 
and it can even accumulate fluid behind the eardrum. So a lot of children get ear fluid, right? And they need ear tubes, and it's because their eustachian tube is dysfunctional. So let's talk about this new procedure. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what you do to get the eustachian tube open? Okay, so what what you really need to do is take a look through the nose. So using an endoscope pass through the nose to look back there and see one as you're going to the eustachian tube, look in the nose and see if there's evidence of a chronic sinus drainage or something that can be causing inflammation or swelling and obstruction of the eustachian tube. You look in the area called the nasopharynx, which is essentially the space where the eustachian tube is and on the back wall, you can have tissue there that's enlarged and inflamed and it's, it's adenoid tissue. You may have heard of kids getting their adenoids out. Uh, it's a similar tissue to tonsils and it can get chronically infected or inflamed and that can contribute to dysfunction of the eustachian tube. So you want to look there and then think about if you're having acid reflux and it's not well controlled, that can be refluxing up even in your sleep to create swelling and inflammation around the eustachian tube. So you want to take a good look there and then watch a patient swallow and watch for a little uh, the dilation of the eustachian tube to see if it looks swollen, if it looks inflamed, if it looks like it's dilating well, how are the muscles contracting to open that eustachian tube. And then, of course, look in the ear canal, look at the eardrum, see if there's any evidence of fluid in the middle ear or retraction of the eardrum inward because of a chronic uh, negative pressure. So with this procedure, you can dilate, do you put like a stent in it or? Yeah, so... You know, traditionally, if you couldn't get the eustachian tube to function properly, you bypass it. So you put a little ventilation tube. It's a tiny plastic tube in the in the eardrum, and you and you bypass the eustachian tube. You equalize sure. pressure dr- straight through the eardrum. So the balloon is actually trying to modify the eustachian tube itself, so you can avoid an ear tube. And so it's a procedure done where you pass a camera down into the nose and gently thread a little balloon up into the eustachian tube and dilate the balloon. And it's a non-compressible balloon, so it's very, you know, stiff. Um, And what it does is essentially stretches the walls of the eustachian tube and puts pressure on the tissue, and you leave it dilated for two minutes and then release that balloon and remove it. And what that does is creates a slight injury to the surface lining of the eustachian tube, which then heals and also compresses the deeper layer of the tissue, creating a little bit of scarring um, to allow the tube to dilate better. Um, and so in the this, this balloon's been available and FDA approved for about a year, um, but in the studies of patients that have clear chronic eustachian tube dysfunction, <clears throat> The patients that were not treated, they were treated with nasal sprays and other medical treatments at six to six weeks to 12 weeks to uh, 24 weeks, their success rate of restoring eustachian tube function was about 10 to 15%, where with the balloon, it was between 50 to 60%. Wow. So obviously, we'd like that number to be higher, and I think it's a matter of selecting the right patients as sure. always. But it's a dramatic difference between, you know, medical treatment for eustachian tube dysfunction. You can always default to a tube in the eardrum, but a tube in the eardrum can get, you know, they come out, they can leave hole, a hole in the eardrum. You have to be careful when you swim. They can get blocked. You're a little higher risk of an ear infection. 
and so there's some maintenance with the with the near tube. Whereas with the dilation, um, you know, the the studies are showing at least to two three years out, patients are doing well, and they don't have to keep coming into the doctor, and um, they can fly with less pain and. So uh, there's a lot of promise to this treatment for patients. Will we be seeing it in children? Yeah, there are there are some small studies that have been dilating eustachian tubes in children. It seems to be effective as well. It's the the device is currently intended for adults, but I think we'll see that very soon. I think that's a that's a great. Uh, indication for the procedure. Boy, this sounds like a great breakthrough. And actually, for our listeners to know, if you wish to get in touch with Dr. Witcherly, his phone number, 860-284-4950, is the telephone number for Dr. Witcherly's office. Um, I'm going to ask Shirley to hang on because she has a question about tinnitus ringing in your ears, and we want to talk about that in the last segment that's upcoming. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and this is our final segment of the program. And uh, Shirley has been very uh, patient and, and waiting. Shirley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you had a question about tinnitus. Right. I have observed that I have no ringing in my ears unless I turn the radio or the television set on. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that's that's uh, pretty interesting there, Ben, from the standpoint that usually the radio or television mask the tinnitus, do- doesn't it? That's right, yeah. It, it, typically, sound will make it much less noticeable or not noticeable at all, and you'll hear tinnitus more when it's quiet. So that is unusual. But I don't have it when it's quiet. If when I get up in the morning, I don't have it. I turn on the radio and I get it. Yeah, so if the television or the radio is loud, sometimes overstimulation of the auditory system can induce some tinnitus. So I don't know how loud you have it on, but that's that's a, a situation where you may hear tinnitus after words or during if it's if you're getting a little overstimulated with the volume of the of the TV or the radio but that is unusual what you're describing yeah but I always have unusual things okay well <laughs> listen thanks for sharing that no but you know it's it's definitely you know like yep. I was doing dishes just before I turned the radio on I didn't have any ringing in my ears I turned the radio on and the ringing came well, I got to tell you that that's a medical marvel from our end. It, but, but believe me, when it comes to hearing anything, uh, uh, can happen from that standpoint. Shirley, thank you for the question. Well, thank you for Thanks. the info. All right, have a good weekend. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, uh, let's talk a little bit more about tinnitus because that's kind of an odd situation in the sense. Why do people get ringing in their ears? Um. Well, most of the folks that have tinnitus, and it's not a small number of people. Um, have hearing loss. So it's about 90% of tinnitus patients have also have hearing loss. So we don't know exactly why those patients have tinnitus because a lot of people have hearing loss that don't have tinnitus, right? So the thought and the current understanding of tinnitus is that 
you've you've lost some of the function of the inner ear. You don't have uh, the same level of sensitivity to sound, and your brain is not well adapted to that. It's not going. It's not changing with the ears. As the ears change, the brain is expecting something that it's not getting, essentially, and so it's almost as if the brain, the auditory center of the brain, is overactive and trying to essentially compensate for a loss. That's that's the understanding. And and it comes from a couple things. One is if you have if if in a patient that has a an ear problem with tinnitus and they say they have a tumor along their hearing nerve and they have tinnitus and they have to have surgery to remove the tumor and it essentially disconnects the ear from the brain because the nerve was cut as part of the surgery majority of those patients will continue to have tinnitus despite having no hearing in that ear or no connection between the ear and the brain. So it's at least 60% of those patients will continue to have tinnitus. So we know that in more than half of patients, the problem is a central problem. The, it, the problem is somewhere within the, the marvelous brain and, and what it's doing and how it's responding to dysfunction of the ear. But it persists within the brain. It might have started with an ear problem, but the the continuance of the problem may be a slight maladaption to that problem. Do medications help? For example, if it were overstimulation of the brain, as a neurologist, my thought is to use an anticonvulsant or to try an anticonvulsant or a, a GABA agonist like uh, Depakote or something like that. Has that ever been tried? Does that work? It, it's been tried. Um, there have been studies on using uh, benzodiazepines or other medications, sure. and it's never shown to be effective. Okay. And so it's it's a complicated problem, I think. Uh, it's tr- We're trying to unravel it. Um, there are some therapies in research that seem to be effective for certain patients. One of them is magnetic stimulation of the brain transcranial magnetic stimulation of the brain has shown the ability to modify tinnitus. Uh, In most patients, it doesn't last a long time. So it would, it it seems to be something that has to be repeated. Um, But perhaps there may be some way of stimulating the brain magnetically or, or other ways coupled with some kind of acoustic or auditory retraining that may be able to fix it. Um, but but currently it's 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 still a bit of a mystery as to why exactly people have tinnitus and how we can understand better what's happening in inside of the brain and then try to modify that. We have Ron on the phone from Farmington. Uh, Ron, you have a question about hearing damage from an MRI machine. Right. I wanted to know if the doctor has seen much of that because uh, I've been at MRI machines at least a half a dozen times and. Uh, the last time, it's always loud in there. It's always extremely loud in there. But the last time I was in there, I was experiencing ex- extreme loudness. And I was in there in there for quite a while, probably at least a half hour or more even. And when I got out, I, and I knew it was loud, and I was thinking about asking to be pulled out of there just because of the, the, the noise level. But you had you had headphones on, correct? Well, I did, but I don't. I mean, they weren't headphones. They were some kind of ear. I was in communication with the operators yeah. of the machine, and I think they were more like uh, earplugs on a band, on a on some kind of a band that kept pressure. But evidently, they weren't seated properly because it was extremely loud. And when I got out of that, I got pulled out of there finally, and I got up. My head was like half dead. 
from the noise, and it lasted quite a while. I mean, that's interesting because I mean, uh, well, I do a lot of MRIs on patients. I've never heard that. I mean, people complain about the noise. Anybody who's ever had an MRI, but uh, I've always had headphones to wear. Right. I mean, but they if you're in there and you're they're yeah. not seated properly okay. on your head, sure. That's what I wanted okay. to know. If uh, all right, okay, well, all right. Thank you. Thanks. So, I mean, loud noises like the MRI producing one episode of hearing loss. Do you hear them? Uh, not permanent. Usually, an explosion. Yeah, not permanent hearing loss. So, if if you get if you get an explosion or close enough to a jet engine, you can have immediate permanent hearing loss. But for most of these noises, like an MRI, you can. It, it's all about the duration of exposure. So, a chainsaw, if longer than fifteen minutes, you're at risk for hearing loss. But it's not just a single instance, it's repeatedly. So um, usually you'll get what's called a temporary threshold shift in a situation like that where it's too loud, you come out, your ears feel muffled. Like if you went to a loud concert and your ears feel muffled and ring for 24 hours, you've probably induced some slight damage, but you wouldn't be able to pick that up on a hearing test. But if you did that repeatedly over time, you would start seeing a loss on a hearing test and, and you'd notice it functionally. So... Probably it's possible there was a little uh, – it's probably a temporary threshold shift where your hearing dropped a little bit and recovered back to normal. But it, 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 the, the caller is right. It's it's all about wearing that ear protection properly. And, sure. and if you do, you're very safe. Yeah. Uh, now that we're talking about hearing loss, hearing aids, they have gone to a whole nother level. I mean uh, uh, my brother-in-law had one that you adjust from a remote control – uh, in terms of what setting you're in, if you're in a bar, um, he was a bartender at the time or whatever. I mean, they've really gone to an. Have they improved that much? Yeah, they've improved a lot. They've got they've become digital, where they used to be analog, and so that has helped them to be a little smarter. Yep. Uh, they typically have more than one microphone, so a microphone kind of uh, collecting sound in front of you and one behind, and uh, there's you know. Uh, programming within the hearing aid to modify the microphones if you're in noise, recognizing you're in, in a noisy place and trying to change uh, the, the directionality of the microphone to improve your hearing. Um, so they've gotten smaller, they've gotten smarter, and they've gotten more, uh, they connect better with, with our personal devices and our phones. So you can answer calls with a hearing aid, you can use your telephone as a microphone if you wanted to set it on the table closer to the person that you want to hear and stream that directly to your hearing aid. So these are very powerful, valuable tools. Uh, you know, one of the biggest complaints with hearing aids is hearing in a restaurant or a noisy place, and that's still a challenge. Hearing aids are not perfect yet, and one of the big challenges for hearing aids is helping people hear a lot better in background noise, and that's what you'll hear people complain about the most with hearing aids. So they can do a lot, and they're much better than they used to be, And uh, uh, but there's still some hurdles. A lot less stigma associated with wearing a hearing aid. It always used to, you know, if someone was wearing a hearing aid, you know, they would be self-conscious of it, but others would think maybe they're not hearing me or uh, I, I, is there less stigma with a hearing aid now? I think there probably is because more people are wearing them. And you see a lot of them now. And yeah. They're much smaller. They're hard to really recognize. Mm -hmm. the, the smaller they are, the more people are willing to wear them. I think the, they function much better. So it used to be you'd see a hearing aid and it would whistle and ring and it was big. 
And so people weren't interested. And, and yep. what you heard from people was they hated their hearing aids. You don't hear that as much anymore because people really like their hearing aids. So as more people wear them, there's less stigma. I want to thank Dr. Ben Witcherly for, Witcherly for being here today, and uh, it's been great having him. You could reach him at 860-284-4950. Uh, want to thank Kevin Wilkes on the board and Jeff Chandler, who's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up is Garden Talk. You've been listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Care, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Till then, stay well.